And if you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 14. I'd like to start at Mark chapter 14 verse 12. And we will work our way up to this morning. Last week we talked about the Passover. And uh, this morning we're going to look at this beautiful thing called the Lord's Supper or the communion. And what Christ was accomplishing through that. What that means to us. Verse 12 in chapter 14. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Whatever he, wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out, and they came into the city, and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful. And to say to him, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. This morning we are going to look at the gifts that Christ offers in the Last Supper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this tremendous offering of yourself, the King of creation, he who was the instrument of all that is, that nothing was made that was not made by him, that you created all things and that all things were created through you and for you, and that you are before all things, and yet you come to this group of 12 men tonight, or 11 men that night, and Father, they, they had fumbled and stumbled, and, and yet you, you gave them the greatest gift. And Father, you have done that to many of us. We owe you everything. Lord, help us to understand the truths of what you say here and what takes place on that night before you then went to your crucifixion. In your name we pray, and we ask for your revelation, for your inspiration, for your teaching us this morning. Please illuminate your scriptures to us. Amen. Verse 22, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body. The giving of himself. This is the Passover celebration that we started last week, and it is a continuation of what has been going on there. If you remember a little bit to last week, the, the Passover celebration would have these elements to it. It really was divided into four parts, each part ending with a cup of wine. And in the midst of it all, they sang what were called the Hallel Psalms. Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. Now that first part of the Passover was when the family head would pronounce a blessing over the celebration and the wine, and it would be followed by a ceremonial hand washing. Secondly, after this, the food was brought in, and one of the children 
would traditionally ask the head of the household, the father, why is this night different from other nights? And in response, the father described the exodus from Egypt, essentially given there in Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 9, then just explain how the people had been oppressed, they had been hindered, then God had come and used Moses as his servant and through the plagues, through his mighty work, had delivered them out of Egypt. And the Passover was that final night in Egypt before the Exodus when God had worked in this miraculous and yet very heavy, dark way to give his people complete freedom. He had pronounced in that last plague that the firstborn out of every family, whether you were a slave, whether you were a prisoner, whether you were a king, whether you were a warrior, the firstborn of every family, even of the livestock, would be killed that night. And the way to escape that angel of death was to take this Passover lamb, and we've looked at some of the requirements of that lamb, that it be a year old, that it be without spot or blemish. It could be a goat, it could be sheep. But if you take that year old lamb and you would then offer it to God, take the blood from that lamb and put it over your doorposts. At that point is what we call the Passover. Why it's called that? Because the angel of death would pass over the home that had the symbol of death of that lamb on its doorposts. And his father would explain that to the family so that every year they would be renewed in their marvel at who God is and what he had done and how he had cared for his people. Then they would follow that with the singing of Psalms 113 through 115. The third step, the father would offer prayer for the bitter herbs and the stewed fruit, symbolizing Israel's captivity in Egypt and the difficulty and blessing of their exodus. And then the family and the guests partook of the meal, which included the roasted lamb. The final part, prior to midnight, would be the singing of Psalm 116 through 118 and a final cup of wine to finish it off. Now, what is taking place at this moment in verse 22 appears to be the third part of the Passover. And here Jesus, the, the meal has been completed and Jesus is taking the bread. They have eaten of the lamb that was earlier sacrificed at the table, at the table, excuse me, at the temple. And they have tasted of the bitter herbs and the bread that were dipped in the stewed dried fruit and in the nut mix. Now, one thing we're not absolutely sure of as we look at the Gospels is where is Judas at this point? If Matthew, Mark, and John are writing chronologically, then Judas is gone. He has already left, as Jesus had said to him, what you must do, go and do quickly. He has left and set about the betrayal of Christ to the authorities. But we're not absolutely sure because in the book of Luke it appears that Perhaps he still is there at this time. So we don't know, and I don't want to make a huge deal of that. But I, I know, and, and we have talked about this before, at times the gospel writers do not write chronologically. They write thematically. Or they write with different purposes in how they arrange things. It's not a dishonesty. It's a way that we don't see things nowadays. But there at times they didn't write chronologically. I do believe that with the specific detail given in Matthew, Mark, and, Luke, and John, and the offering of the gift that Jesus gives with the new covenant, that I don't believe that Judas was there. But it's not one of those things that I, I think we can know for sure without an absolute uh, doubt at all. But 
We have these men gathered. And it says in verse 22, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it. And he gave it to them. The bread is his body, he says. Now Jesus, Jesus at this moment takes absolute control. You will see five specific verbs. It's like staccato action here where Jesus does these things. He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave, and he said. And in doing this, he is taking a very old sacrament, a memorial, and he is turning it into something thoroughly new and distinctly different. The bread Jesus takes, we know, is unleavened. Remember that this is not only the Passover celebration, but it is also the first day of what? It's the Passover and it is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that is why we know that this bread that he's offering is completely unleavened. Not only was the food unleavened, but if you remember right, they spent the week going throughout the house, every nook and cranny, making sure that there was no leaven at all in the home. This was especially important because it symbolized the haste in which Israelites left Egypt. And it also symbolized the separation from sin and worldliness. We see that confirmed by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. He confirms this whole theme. He says there, Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. Why? For indeed, Jesus Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. <clears throat> we have removed the leaven of worldliness. We have removed the leaven of sin. Because we want to be those who have been purged by Christ, that we can offer our bodies, as Romans 12:1 says, as a pleasing sacrifice to God. Then says that Jesus blessed this unleavened bread. And I was just talking with a couple of brothers uh, even last night about this idea that Jesus is praying and he is God. And who is he praying to? Is this a, an odd thing? No, it, it would seem that way when we try to understand the Trinity as a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we also know that they are distinct persons and that the Son had an intimate, close relationship with the Father and that he was constantly in prayer that, he gave thanks, he blessed, and in here, this portion of the scripture, they are synonymous. We will see in just a moment that Jesus gives thanks for the wine. If you look at Luke, he gave thanks for the bread. So giving thanks and blessing are synonymous at this point. And we have several examples of Jesus doing that. If we look at Mark chapter 6, verse 41. We see it that Jesus took five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves. Mark 8, verse 7. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. So in these two specific instances, Jesus has blessed or given thanks for the bread. Now that's, that's interesting, and we would think that's Christ in his, inc in his incarnate form. In his human form. But. If we go. To Luke chapter 24. Verses 28 through 31. Even after Jesus' resurrection. And he has received his glorified body. After his crucifixion. And resurrection. Jesus comes along two men. These are two guys. Who are coming out of Jerusalem. Heading to Emmaus. Uh, the best 
understanding you could have maybe these guys are just bewildered. They have been there. They know about Christ and how intimate, close they were. We don't know exactly. But certainly they were, they were down. They, they were heavy laden as they're heading back to Emmaus. And this stranger comes up to them and begins to talk to them. And in fact, they're kind of saying, man, where have you been? Do you not know what has happened in Jerusalem? And, and think of the irony that they're speaking to Jesus Christ. And these men are walking along and Jesus begins, it says, to expound to them from the Old Testament scriptures, from the law and the prophets, who he was, the purpose of what he was. And at one point then it says in verse 28, they, the three of them, them drew near to the village to which they were going. Jesus acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And I find that fascinating. Here is the creator of the universe. And yet when he comes to the dinner table, to the meal, to the fellowship over a meal, what does he do? He, he thanks his father in dependence and blessing upon that. Um, <clears throat> It, it may seem like a small side issue, but I urge you to do that wherever you are, publicly, privately, be constantly thankful for this great God that we have. We take so much for granted. Jesus took nothing for granted. Even in his moment of glorification, he gave thanks to the Father for the bread that was supplied for them. So let us be those kind of people. It may be the testimony in a public setting that causes someone to think about who is this God? Why would these strange people give thanks to him in glory? Someone may ask, well, what are you doing? This may give opportunity to tell them about who Christ is. But nonetheless, whether it's in private or in public, Christ will be glorified because you are giving thanks and honoring him just as our Savior did. Don't be absent-minded. Don't be ashamed. Don't be in too big of a hurry and neglect to do what even the Son of God did. While he was on earth. Give thanks to our father for meals. For his abundant blessings. Regularly. Jesus did. And he was the creator. Then we read that he took that bread. And he broke it. Or he divided it. And there's some debate as to what, whether this is symbolic. Of Jesus' body being broken or not. Now we know that the scriptures tell us. That the body or the bones of Christ. Would not be broken. And it is miraculous that that took place. But not a single bone of the body of Christ was broken in his crucifixion. But if we read through the detail, the excruciating detail of the last 24 hours of Jesus Christ's life, we know that his body was severely injured in, in about every imaginable way that you can think of. That was our Christ. Whether this represents actually the broken body, I don't know. Sometimes we tie things in and, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But part of it is he broke the bread, which is the only way he could give this one loaf to 12 different people. So he broke it and divided it up. And then it says he gave it to them. Now this is Jesus Christ personally giving each of his disciples of himself symbolically in this bread. So he has blessed it, he has, he has taken it, blessed it, broke it, and he has now given it to them. 
But now comes something very important. It says, and he said to them. Now he will give them the explanation of this groundbreaking truth. This is something that they have never imagined, that they have never heard. Now we have grown up with this constantly. And we have seen it in some of the churches we grew up in. We saw uh, the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Others on a quarterly basis. I know a particular church that does it twice annually. And one might think, well that seems uh, to be rather inappropriate. But I tell you, uh, those brethren, when they, when they go to the Lord for the Lord's Supper, they take a week prior to that. And anyone who has anything against another brother is supposed to go and get those settled between themselves. And they're trying to have everything in, in pure and complete fellowship so that when they come together for the Lord's Supper, their hearts are pure and they are united. And sin, leaven, has been removed. So I'm not one to be critical necessarily of, of each one. What I probably have to do is be critical of myself. How many times have I seen this and I enter into it with such a shallow mind? But this is such an important thing that Jesus begins to explain. He says, take and eat. And I, and I understand that some of your versions do not include the word eat. But it is implied there. It says in Luke chapter twenty-two, nineteen, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it's, it's a good thing to look at this in conjunction with all of the Gospels together. This is my body. It's a two-letter word, and it's caused great consternation amongst the people of God and, and those outside about what is meant here. What does he mean when he says, this is my body? Calvin explains, so then the bread which had been appointed for the nourishment of the body is chosen and sanctified by Christ to a different use so as to begin to be a spiritual food. Consecration is nothing else than a solemn testimony by which the Lord appoints to us for a spiritual use an earthly and corruptible sign. We must not suppose that there is any change of the substance, but must only believe that it is applied to a new purpose. The bread and the wine that was offered was applied to a new purpose by Christ. It was symbolic of what would take place in the very, very near future, within 24 hours essentially. The language that we're talking about here sometimes is called a metonymy. And a metonymy, here's a definition from Britannica. It is a figure of speech in which the name of an object or concept is replaced with the word closely related to or suggested by the original. An author might say, I am studying Shakespeare, meaning that he is studying the works of Shakespeare, but not literally studying Shakespeare. Uh, an example from Shakespeare would be Mark Anthony's speech with Julius Caesar in which he asks of his audience, lend me your ears. And we understood what he meant there. Uh, nobody was ripping it off and throwing it at him. Uh, they were listening to him because they understood the symbolism. We see this often in the scriptures this morning. And I appreciated one of the uh, songs that we sang. And I don't know what led Dave to choose that one. But John chapter 10 verse 7. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
I am the door of the sheep. Now, if we were to take this literally, as a literalist would, then we would assume that Jesus is a door with a handle, perhaps hinges. And the people that come in are not actually people, they are sheep. But we know that that's not the case. This is metonymy. It is giving us a symbolism of, to help us understand the concept of who Jesus is as the door. He is the only way. Remember that he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The door illustrates that principle. Let me give you a couple of more. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4. And all drank from the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. John 1 32. And John bore witness and I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. Was Jesus actually a rock? He wasn't. Was the Spirit of God literally a dove that came down? No, it wasn't. It descended in the form or in the way as a dove. And it was an explanation of how this took place. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 2. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews says, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. John 8, 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Does that mean that all of those who follow Jesus, all those disciples could go out at 2 o'clock in the morning and never need any sort of a, a torch to, to, to light the way? It does not mean that. And we know that. We understand it. It's a metonymy. It is a, a symbol to present who Jesus is, what he gives. Then perhaps the last one I'll mention is John 15. I am the vine. And my father is a vine dresser. While some have sometimes said that this is a literal thing with the bread and the body and, we'll get it, and the blood and the wine, and I'll get into that in a moment. Probably I've never heard a, a single uh, theologian say that Jesus literally was a vine. It, we, we know that's not true. And we know that God is not uh, this giant gardener with the pruning shears that comes along. And yet it, it strikes our heart because we grasp something deeper than we would have otherwise. We understand it. We want to abide like a branch abides in the vine. In the Lord's Supper then, we must not confuse the spiritual blessing with the sign. The bread is not Christ but it represents a truth Christ is declaring. Now, that brings us to the word that has been uh, mentioned many times when we talk about the Lord's Supper, and it's the word transubstantiation. Some of you are very familiar with that from your background in Roman Catholicism. Transubstantiation is a misunderstanding of what takes place here, and it believes that the bread and wine literally become the flesh body and the actual blood of Jesus. And it only appears to be bread and wine. It's held by Roman Catholics. It's held by those who are with Eastern Orthodoxy. One of the writers in responding to this said, they would have the sign to be a false and delusive appearance of bread. You see what, what he's saying there? It, if, why would God have it appear 
still to be bread, if in actuality it is not. He goes on, What then will the thing signified be? But a mere imagination. Hence, if there must be a correspondence between the sign and its reality, it is necessary that the bread be real, not imaginary, to represent Christ's real body. And, and I ask, in, in view of that, does Christ present a sham, a charade in the bread and the wine? He does not. It is symbolic. It is to point us. It is to represent or to symbolize what he is doing in this moment. And this is building up and, and it's some kind of uh, groundwork I think we need to understand as we look at literally what he is giving to us. Verse 23 says, Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant or of the testament which is shed or poured out for many. Jesus gave thanks. It's the word that we get Eucharist from. Eucharisteo. And it means to be grateful. It's really a pretty simple word. It means to give thanks or to be grateful. And that's what Jesus has done over this cup. And then he tells him in Matthew 26, not only does he give it, he says, drink from it, all of you. And Mark then tells us, and they all drank it. So when he says this, what is he talking about? This is my blood. This, as we look at the scriptures, is a covenant. This that he's talking about, this blood or this uh, cup of the vine is the covenant represented in his blood. His blood will accomplish this. It is a testament. A covenant involves promise. It is a promise, it is a commitment initiated and kept by God Himself. God is the one who initiates this. God brings it and God sustains His people underneath it. Now the word new is not recorded in some versions I realize too. But new does appear in Luke chapter 20, or chapter 22 verse 20. The parallel to this in every translation. And it appears when Paul speaks about the new covenant. In relationship to the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So this is the new covenant Jesus is speaking about. Now it is not new. Because it has never been heard of. Or is completely unknown. It's not like Jesus is saying. Okay I'm telling you something. That, that never has been uttered before. No, the writer of the book of Hebrews described it this way. He says, when he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant is vanishing away. Jeremiah, clear back in the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, and then Ezekiel, in chapter 36, 24 through 26, gave us this new covenant. It is something that God's people have been waiting for. It is something that only the Messiah can fulfill. And they have long fulfilled the types and shadows. Uh, year after year, the scriptures say, they would come to offer the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. It speaks about the, the, the priests who would every, every year they would go in and they would offer the blood on the altar 
And did this take away sins? No, it says in Hebrews that it was a reminder of sins every year of how desperately they needed the grace of God. And those that would seek after God would trust that God would provide that Messiah someday, would provide that offering for them. But, but one would ask, why blood? Uh, I've been asked that many times. Why, why would God require death? Those from a Muslim per- persuasion think that is idiocy. Why not just forgive? So why do we say blood is required? Because the wages of sin, Scripture says, are, is death. Because the holiness of God is so beyond our greatest comprehension that we don't even know what it means Hardly when we violate his law. When we go against his will. We are so comfortable with that as mortal men. It is in our nature to rebel. He is holy, holy, holy. He is a pure eyes and to behold wickedness. He is not a God who takes pleasure in anything but holiness and purity. And one might say, what a cruel God. But not when we see what he does. Why blood? Well, the example is given in previous covenants. Noah. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Abraham. Abraham believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, God said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, How shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. Genesis chapter 15. If you want to see a fascinating picture of the covenant that God made, this was all God. In fact, essentially... Abraham is lying there comatose. And God performs his covenant. Exodus chapter 24. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Our God is so great. He is so holy beyond our greatest comprehension that in order for his wrath against our sin to be appeased, he has said it requires death. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9 verse 18. Therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. 
And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. The word, what keeps echoing through there? What word do we hear more often than any? Blood. The blood requirement. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves are better sacrifices than these. And there comes Christ. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. What, a, what an offering. The blood of the creator of the universe, the son of God, pure and faultless and holy. What did it do? It accomplishes the remission of sins. Matthew includes that in this portion, his parallel account, that this cup of the covenant is offered for the remission of sins. Now, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. And I'm going to ask you, as we read through this, if you would, underline or note... What has this blood of the high priest, the high priest's own blood mentioned here in verses 11 through 15, what has it accomplished or gained? And and then I want to ask, as we read through it, be students of the word, what do we see the blood of the high priest has accomplished? Beginning with verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, That is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves. But with his own blood. He entered the most holy place. Once for all. Having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats. And the ashes of a heifer. Sprinkling the unclean. Sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ. Who through the eternal spirit. Offered himself without spot to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. That those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The eternal inheritance. What does that tell us the blood has accomplished? Just give me a few things. What do you see there? What has happened to your conscience if you have trusted in the blood of Christ? We're we're cleansed from dead works. We're forgiven for our sins. The transgressions before the new covenant, during the old covenant, have been forgiven by what has happened here. What did it do for Christ? Verse 15, For this reason, by means of death, he became the mediator of a new covenant. And we mentioned already the redemption of the transgressions, our sins under that first covenant. 
What else will you receive if you believe and trust in this blood of Jesus? The eternal inheritance. Man, we are like literal sons and daughters of this God. And he has an inheritance for us that never fades away, never passes. It's eternal. Some of you may have had wealthy relatives and received a pretty good payout. Some of you may have had very poor relatives and been in their debt after they passed away. I do not know, but our Father who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that is, that, that's like a tiny little snowflake on the iceberg. It's nothing. He has the riches of eternity. And nothing we have seen compares to that. And we receive that eternal inheritance by what this blood accomplishes. I want to move on now to Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 through 11 and we're going to look at the contrast if you would and as I read this I want you to see what the law cannot do and any negative aspect of the law that this writer mentions look carefully what is this telling us that the law cannot do for the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have, not, not have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. This is Jesus. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. What can the law not do? Pardon? Make perfect. make perfect. It cannot make perfect. It cannot. And that is what's required. What else can it not do? It can't ever take away sins. Yeah. It's not permanent. Okay. Good. Very good. What else? The law required burnt offerings and sacrifices, didn't it? Do we see that that is very attractive to God in these scriptures? That says you do not desire those. You had no pleasure in those. What God wants is the heart. The law could never do this. Repeatedly, time after time after time, when we share the gospel with people, they want to rely not on sacrifices that they've offered, but not on the grace of God. They want to rely on on a balance of scales that hopefully they've got a little bit more good 
that would earn the pleasure of God. God does not operate in that way. That scale can be cast aside. Sin, as Isaiah the prophet said, separates from you and your God. Our iniquities have hidden his face from us so that he will not hear. The law can never bring us near to God. Whether it means the sacrifice or whether it means trying to live in in a way that would earn our salvation before God. We cannot do it. The priests in the time of Christ were, were his greatest enemies in helping people understand who God was because they had it all on that basis of earning, of performing, of adhering to the law, which Jesus told them, you, you never do yourselves. Let us not fall into that trap. Let us look to what Jesus is going to offer when he brings them to this bread and this wine. Now Hebrews 10, 12 through 18, and it'll be, a, then you can put your pens down if you're using them or, uh, relax a little bit more but Hebrews 10 12 through 18 here we have the power to give life and freedom in the new covenant look at what God has done or what he has given verse 12 but this man Jesus Christ after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Tell me, what has God done through the new covenant? He's provided a way. Amen. A way way for what? To know him, to be his, to have the life that will be accepted by God the Father through this new covenant. He has provided a way for us to know the law. He has provided a way for us to have our sins removed completely. And Gal mentioned temporary. What does it say about this covenant? It is eternal, it is forever. Our sins are gone, they have been paid for fully. summary of the blood of the new covenant the identity that is given by Christ at this last supper is the cup of wine it is the blood of the new covenant as Hebrews says therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood this new covenant is dedicated with blood too but blood far greater than the blood of bulls and goats the means the means for this covenant this blood is to be poured out. It is to be shed. Edwards writes the phrase poured out for many. Although it is symbolized in the pouring of the wine. Becomes reality. Not in the wine of the upper room. But in Jesus' death on Golgotha. You see the wine that Jesus is pouring out into these cups for these men. Is literally wine. 
it is. And it represents something far greater. It represents what will happen really in just one day's time as this one pouring the wine will be the one whose blood is poured out in payment for the sins of all of his elect. Those that will trust in him, sins will be paid for on that cross. That blood is being poured out like this wine. And thirdly, the scope. It says, for many. And then in Luke it says, for you. So there is a personal touch on this. That blood is poured out for you, Cameron. For you, Mark. That blood is poured out for you, Ethan. That blood is poured out for you, Genesis. If you are his, if you will trust in him. That blood has been poured out for many And it has been poured out for you personally. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, He shall see the labor of his soul. This is Jesus being prophesied hundreds of years before he would ever hit that cross. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. For he shall bear, he shall carry their sins, their iniquities. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for Jesus, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons, bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of salvation perfect through suffering. Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 through 14. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. We will see this. This isn't just an imaginary fictional thing to get us stirred up. This is what we will see. Crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Be ready. Be ready to fall down. You're not going to be standing up when all the four elders and the living creatures and everybody else is on their face. We will be overcome with, with the glory of God, and we will fall down before Him. And they sang, or they said, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom. Thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered saying to me. That was John. The elder was saying to him. Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where do they come from? And I said to him. Sir you know. So he said to me. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And washed their robes. And he made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. They came out of the great tribulation and their robes were made sparkling, dazzling, purely white because they were washed in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 25. Finality and promise. Jesus' last words at that table. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Here the disciples are given a very sober warning that Jesus' death, his end, is very near. But they are also given a thrilling assurance that ultimately they will be joined back together with him. Do you hear what he's saying there? Let me read that again. 
I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The significance. Anytime you read a verse and it says, assuredly, know that this is important. And when he says, assuredly, I say to you, you know it's doubly important. This is important. It's like saying, now hear this. Listen up, men. Never again, no longer will I do what I'm doing with you here. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine. Notice he doesn't call it his blood. It is, it is the fruit of the vine representative of his blood. I will not drink of this vine again. And then the promise of renewal. Until that day when. On that day, change will come. Change is coming. You remember our study of Mark chapter 13? And we were talking about the use of the word, these things in that day. This is that day. Let me show you Matthew 13, excuse me, Mark 13, verse 17. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Verse 19. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. Verse 20. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And then finally in verse 32. But on that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That day when God brings his son back when Christ returns again the reunion will be established and we will have fellowship with the father again just as these disciples there will be many around that table more than just those men so we have the promise of renewal we have the condition until that day the communion in Mar- excuse me Matthew he adds the phrase at the end, drink it new with you. So we have the communion and we have the consummation in the kingdom of God or in my Father's kingdom. Jesus promises disciples that he and they will again join in a wonderful eternal reunion in his kingdom. Now remember the Passover as we conclude now. The Passover had four cups of wine. The four cups of the Passover each represent a fourfold promise of redemption that we find in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. Please turn to Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. It's the second book in the Old Testament. The Lord says to Moses in verse 6, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you out from those burdens. Secondly, I will rescue you from their bondage. Thirdly, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then fourthly, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. In this Passover that has been transformed into the new covenant redemption, Jesus uses the third cup of wine 
And it appears that he does not take of the fourth. He uses the third, representing his redeeming atonement that would soon purchase his children out of sin and death. Redeem means to buy back. Redemption is, is a fancy way of saying, I'm purchasing those slaves. Those are gonna, I'm going to own them now. Jesus has done that with his blood. That was the price he paid. And those who trust in him, who follow Christ, belong to him. They have been purchased by this blood. I want you to turn, if you would, to Colossians 1. and This will be the closing portion of the message this morning. Colossians 1 is one of the most beautiful renderings of who Jesus Christ is. Beginning with verse 13. And imagine, if you will, a diamond that has facets all over it that catch the light and make it beautiful. And, and you look at that and you see this diamond. This is the diamond of Christ presented with many facets. Think of them as we read. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Now listen to the last, last part. We, this is so glorious of this God. But look what he does. And by him by Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, how, having made peace through the blood of his cross, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now you can probably say a thousand things about the Lord's Supper, but the most important thing we can say as Jesus has given us himself. And he has poured out his blood in this new covenant to purchase us. And we have peace with God. What a, what a wonderful Savior. I hope that as we uh, continue to celebrate the Lord's Supper that, that we will be ever mindful of that. That we will not take for granted the blood that was paid for our, for our sins. And if, if you have not trusted in Christ, if you continue to resist him, know that you're not in a neutral ground. Jesus put it this way. He said that your father is the devil. And, and we recoil at that. 
So no, I'm not that. I may not be following Jesus, but that's Satan isn't my father. Jesus gives you no middle ground. You may be deceived. You may be comfortable where you're at. But your father is the devil until your father becomes the Lord God through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And I urge those of you who have waited, wait no longer. Wait no longer. Don't continue to be deceived. Don't be continuing to go down to the path that will lead to destruction for eternity. We talked of Judas last week. That place is packed. The place is packed with people who waited and resisted and would not give glory to Jesus Christ. Let Christ be our call, be our banner wherever we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, a King, the one uh, as, as the Father that you sent your Son and, and you are watching as he speaks to his disciples and, and speaks of this that only you really know the brutality, uh, the darkness, the separation that will come very shortly. Thank you that you would give your Son Offer your son for us. We are so undeserving. We are deserving. We are deserving of hell and condemnation and punishment for eternity. But in your magnanimous, gracious, unfathomable love, you have brought sinners like us into your kingdom at great cost. Lord Jesus, thank you that you made this covenant and you sprinkled it with your blood with your life. Lord, use us this week. Lord, move those who have never spoken of you out of complacency. Move them to the front lines as soldiers for you, as ambassadors for you, whether it be with their spouse or their children, their neighbor, their extended family, their workmates, whoever it might be, classmates. Lord, use this body of Christ that it will make Christ known and will glorify you, Lord. Please save people through us to add to the number of those who will give praise to your name. For you are worthy for eternity, O Lord God. Amen.